Good morning. When I was a student here at Walla Walla taking a theology major, one summer I went on a trip to southern Africa. We visited Zambia for several weeks. I went with Dave Thomas and a bunch of friends in the theology department. And I visited Africa a couple of times, a couple other times before that. And one of the things that's happened every time I've gone is there's been some kind of national park experience. We go out and see the, the land and see the animals and so on. And this trip was no exception. We went out and uh, had a little bit of a tour. And one of the things that seemed kind of, I don't know if it was odd, but it sort of seemed odd thinking back on it was on this particular trip, instead of you know, getting a guide and a four-wheel drive vehicle and so on, we decided we would just take the, the airporter bus that we had been driving around town. We would just go it on our own and sort of figure it out along the way, which seemed like a really great idea because it was inexpensive. And, and somehow along the way, we, we picked up a park ranger. I don't really know how that happened, but we ended up with a park ranger in our car, and he told us that he would take us to see the rhinos, and so we, it took a couple of hours, he showed us, and there we, we ended up finally in this meadow, and there were two rhinos by a tree, and then there was a guy with a gun over in the bushes nearby because there were guards who guard the rhinos. And so, so there we were, we were watching, and the, the guy that was driving the bus, he got a little bit closer to the rhino than I probably would have had I been driving the bus. And as it turned out, I was against the window, which would be a, a prime spot to see the rhino, and, and so if the bus was kind of like this and the rhino was out where you guys were, I was right up next to a window. And so everybody on the other side of the bus came and smushed up on my side of the bus so that they could see, you know, they had cameras out and everything, and they were all, you know, inside behind the, the protection of the glass. And I was kind of getting mashed up against this window, and it was at that moment that the guide, the park ranger, announced to us that sometimes when these rhinos get afraid, when they feel threatened, they can charge, and they don't see very well, he said, so they'll just run at the biggest thing that they see, which in this case would be the bus. So just be, you know, kind of watch out for that. And so, you know, it was a great experience sitting there, like worried about this rhino who's 20 yards away going to charge the biggest thing, and I was right there. Well, luckily, he didn't he didn't charge, he just hung out and, and ate. But, but we all sort of know of experiences, or we all kind of aware of how animals do this in general. When they get threatened, they can be dangerous. And I asked this question on Facebook this week. Some of you answered me, you helped me out. It was very scientific. You know, what animals, when they are afraid, uh, can be dangerous. So I had lots of suggestions. Moose was a popular one, you know, new moose that has a baby, or uh, bears was another popular one. Dogs, some people suggested dogs can be quite dangerous when they're threatened. And then, and then, you know, just lots of others, bees and wild pigs and snakes and on and on and on. And I think if we had a chance, we could all, probably all tell stories about an animal that we encountered that felt threatened for one reason or another and became aggressive towards us. Uh, I have a great video of a situation like that. This is from YouTube. Um, it's a clip. Ah! <laughs> 
So, you know, in a way, it's easy to empathize with Snuggles, right? I mean, it's kind of sad, you know? It's scared of this remote control. Like, the remote control is obviously not going to hurt it. Maybe it had some past issues with remote controls. We don't really know. But Snuggles is thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This, my, my life is about ready to end. This remote control is coming right towards me. Creatures do curious, strange things when they feel threatened. And it's interesting. I think we see this dynamic in the life of our subject for today. We're, we're in the middle of a sermon series. We just began it last week, for those of you who were here. It's called Characters and Character, where we're looking at some of the biblical characters that are, that are passed over from time to time, and we're asking, what can these people, what can their lives, their stories teach us about uh, growing as a human being? And uh, so this is our second week, and our character this week is found in Matthew chapter 14, in Luke chapter 3, as well as Mark chapter 6, which is where we're going to check out the story, Mark chapter 6. It's the story of Herodias, the story of Herodias. So just a word of background before we dig into Mark's telling of the tale. Herodias was a granddaughter of Herod the Great, and that would be the Herod the Great, the one who interacted with Jesus when he was a baby, or at least who tried to interact with him, who uh, kind of became, uh, had this murderous crazy rage all of a sudden that came up when he heard that there was the king of the Jews who was born. So Herod the Great was the one that caused Jesus and his family to flee and end up in Egypt. And Herodias was a granddaughter of this king. She was a granddaughter. Her mother was actually one of the people that were one of the casualties of Herod the Great's insanity. Uh, Herodias would eventually marry uh, one of her uncles, a son of Herod the Great. It was kind of a step-uncle. And then eventually, she would actually divorce that husband, the first husband, and marry a second husband who was the brother of her first husband, who was also an uncle. And this ended up being uh, Herod Antipas, who was a governor of the Galilean region. Now, all of this took place just before John the Baptist began his ministry, and this is where Mark's report began. Apparently, and, and this is kind of well known, is John had been pretty outspoken about this second marriage in particular, that it wasn't okay, that it wasn't all right. And, and so that's where Mark's story begins. And I have to give you just a little bit of a disclaimer. It's kind of a dark story. Like, I don't know, if it was a movie, a lot of us probably wouldn't want to watch it. And, and so I'm just going to read straight through as it reads in the Scriptures, and then we'll go from there. I won't make a lot of comments. We'll just work, work right through it. So this is chapter 6, verse 17. You can follow along if you'd like. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he himself had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So, Herod, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. She wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune came for Herodias' revenge 
On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Verse 22, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now just aside before we continue, this daughter is believed to be a daughter from Herodias' first marriage. And the, the, the historian Josephus names her as Salome, right? And there's actually, for some of you who are really studious, you'll know that there have been at least two operas written about this girl and this scene. There's been lots of art, books and stories and so on. This is a very popular and intense scene that takes place. So Herod is pleased before his dinner guests, and the king says to the girl, continuing on verse 22, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her an oath. Whatever you ask, even up to half my kingdom, it's yours. Verse 24, so she went out and asked her mother. She went and asked Herodias, what should I ask for? What should I get? The head of John the Baptist, Herodias said. And once the girl hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and because of all the people that were there at the party watching, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately, it says, verse 27, he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, did it in prison, and brought back his head. He presented it to the girl who gave it to her mother. Now, Some of you might be thinking to yourselves, how does this story of narcissistic and petty rage have anything to do with rhinos in Africa? And this would be a reasonable question, I think, in in some ways. I mean, how could Herodias possibly have felt threatened by John the Baptist? How could, I mean, John is this desert-dwelling, bug-eating guy that's half-naked, and he comes rolling in out of the desert and says, yeah, you're not doing the right thing. How does, how does this lady, who's the wife of the king of the Jews, how does she feel threatened by this guy? I mean, so what if some religious nut job comes in and says, you're doing it wrong? And who cares? I mean, how is it that this random announcement that happens on the street corner, how did that affect her so deeply that would cause her to do something so extreme as that? I think part of the answer to that question has to do with shame. Of course, shame isn't really a character trait, it's an emotion, but the way that we handle it in our lives has a deep impact on our relationships on the decisions that we make, on how we move through the world. Shame is a pretty complex phenomenon. It's difficult to describe. It hasn't been studied formally uh, up until fairly recently. And if you ask two different people about what it is, you'd probably have different answers. So I just want to admit on the front end of this that this is kind of how I sort out shame and how it impacts us. But there's probably other ways of thinking about it. Shame is unpleasant. It's not fun to experience it. It's the embodiment of the thoughts, I am unworthy. I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. I'm unwanted. That's 
shame. And it's funny because sometimes shame creeps up on us. It creeps up, creeps up on us in situations that seemingly have nothing to do with us or literally have nothing to do with us at all. It comes and shows up in our lives in situations that, that have nothing to do with shame at all. I mean, shame can be triggered by all sorts of organ, uh, ordinary things. Someone makes a benign comment. Someone raises an eyebrow. Someone talks about a judgment about someone else in some other situation that's totally unrelated. A flat tire, a stubbed toe, a book, a song, an article, a story, anything, all kinds of stuff can trigger shame in our lives. And before we know it, we're off to the races. So this is a little abstract, and I want to get a little bit vulnerable with you and just describe how this looks in my life from time to time. One of my shame triggers has to do with laziness, this narrative that says I'm not doing enough. This is how it works for me. I got my master's degree from Fuller Seminary, and my program was cohort-based, which essentially means that I did the majority of my classes with the same group of people. We took the same classes in the same order, took them all together. It took two or three years, and it was this long process. So by the time we got done, we were all pretty close with each other. We knew each other's stories and what we were doing and where we were serving and kind of the thing, where we lived in the world and so on. We were close. And as it turns out, the people that I went to school with were, are and were remarkable human beings. We had CEOs of businesses in my class, NGO entrepreneurs. We had church planners and recording artists and missionaries from all over the world. We had pastors of huge, successful megachurches and so on. So over the course of that program, these people would tell their stories about what they were up to in the world, what they were doing. And since then, I've seen, you know, I'm friends with all of them on Facebook, and they talk about what's happening in their lives and what they're, what they're doing. You know, one person plants a new church campus for their uh, large church. Another person releases a CD. This other one uh, uh, adopts their fifth child. Um, another couple moves to Africa to serve to plant a church. Another one's on their second book tour, and it goes on and on and on. And sometimes, if I'm not really paying attention to what's going on in me, my unexamined response to these beautiful, good things, these victories and um, successes in other people's lives, the thing that crumbs up in me is shame. Like, I mean, th- this stuff has nothing to do with me. It's great stuff that God is doing in their lives, that God is doing through them, that they're accomplishing me, but to me, my reaction sometimes is shame. And the dialogue is like, man, what am, what am I doing? What am I accomplishing? If I, if I worked a little bit harder, then maybe I would do something that mattered. I feel so far behind. I'm obviously never going to make it. I'm not going to ever catch up to them. I'm never going to succeed. I'm never going to do things as good as they are. I'm never going to be good enough. That's what it sounds like to me. It's these tapes that play, and I think we all have those tapes that play in one way or another. They might be different than mine, but we all have them. Some of you are familiar with the work of Brene Brown. 
She's a shame researcher. She became famous partly for a TED talk that she gave, that she gave that's, I think, the most watched TED talk of all time. And one of the things she talks about in some of her books is, is how that there are several studies that show that the way that our brains and bodies experience shame is very much like they experience trauma. So if a guy gets in a car accident, there's a whole series of responses we would expect that he might have. He might not have all of them, but he's going to have some reaction to this, whether it's immediately or a week later or or a year later. There's pounding of the heart, tense, tight muscles, time slows down, a cold sweat, lumps in your throat, the feeling of being smothered, tongue-tied, eyes widening, frantic, the list goes on and on. It's trauma when we go through trauma. Our body does what's known as the fight or flight or freeze response. It's our nervous system's way of saying, hey, there's a threat, there's something really, really emergent, and we need to take care of us. And the thing about it is, is that this fight or flight response is just automatic. It happens whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, whether we invited it or not. It just takes place. And it's essentially our body's way of saying, oh, no, it's all going to end. I'm in danger. I need to get away. I need to run and hide. I need to get ready to fight or... Mm, I'm just frozen, I have no idea what to do. And what, if, what, what some of Brene Brown's research has found is that shame, a lot like trauma, produces essentially the same physical effects on us when we go through it. We hear or see something, we get triggered, and our bodies respond to what essentially has become an existential threat. I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough, I'm not wanted. And if you don't think I'm unlovable is an existential threat, think about this, for your whole life, up until you were really a teenager, for your whole life you were wholly dependent on other people for your very survival. I mean, that's not to say that we as you know, adults are not dependent on other people, but like as an infant, as a little child, If the people around me don't love me, don't care about me, don't want me, that means my survival is in jeopardy. Being unlovable is a threat to making it to the next year. And so in that sense, cuteness is sort of a defense mechanism. Cuteness is sort of like a mechanism for survival. So when we see videos like these, this is is like manipulation right here. This is... I want to survive, you know, like. had to find a way to work that in. So, <laughs> so, so essentially what happens is we have this, even when we fleetingly believe that we don't deserve love and belonging, even if it's based on things that are completely unrelated to actual survival, our bodies react as if there's a mortal threat right here in front of us on our doorstep. 
Some of us, when we experience shame, we gravitate towards that, that flight or freeze response. We want to get away from it. We don't want to engage it. And if some of you may have noticed that that's kind of my tendency. You know, I want to get away from it. That, that tends to be my mode of action. It's what happened with my seminary friends and I. When I feel shame, I brood I process it, I let it go over and over and over and over and over and over into my mind, I think about it, I don't tell anyone about it. That's what I do. Some of us are like that. We do the flight thing, we freeze, we stop. There's others of us, though, they go on the offensive. We attack, we lash out. Rather than flight, we blame, we shame other people, we tell them how it is them that should feel unlovable and unwanted. We lay it out on the line for other people. And this, I think, is what was happening in Herodias's life. I think she heard John the Baptist talking about her life and her marriage, talking about her, public li- her personal life in public. And I think she got triggered. I think something somewhere stuck. I don't know what the story is. I don't know what the narrative is for her, but something stuck, and she started processing this tape of unworthiness, unlovable, not good enough, not wanted, and full of shame in a fight-or-flight moment, she reacts with crazy viciousness, great ferocity, they want to say things about me. They want to talk about me and say, say they, that's what they think about me. Well, I'm going to show him. I'm going to show him who I am. He thinks he can just drag my dirty laundry out there. Well, I will show it. I will tell him what's up. I will teach him a lesson for saying that kind of thing. She goes on the offensive. Instead of shrinking back into a state of shameful flight or freezing, instead of avoiding or secret keeping, Herodias jumps on the other end of the spectrum and attacks. So the question I think for us this morning, as it always becomes, is how? How does this look in our life? Like some of us may be thinking, yep, I see that in my life. I know how this happens. I know how it feels to... I know how it feels to be the one who thinks later, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I don't know where that came from. Uh, I had really nothing to do with them at all. There's some of us in this room who, who know what it's like to carry around secrets and to hide, to avoid people in situations. Yep, I know what this is like. But the question is, is how do I avoid it? How do I avoid stepping into it? How do I avoid hitting reply all with that email that sends out to everyone an attack for some slight that I perceived in a certain situation? You know, how do I recognize that when I'm hanging out in the couch with Ben and Jerry, that it's actually fueled by shame and I'm hiding from something? How does this actually work out in our lives? So as we close this morning, I want to offer a couple of suggestions and the first has to do with noticing, with paying attention, with saying hello to this stuff. The first has to do with admitting it, owning it, noticing it, 
embracing it. And, and not embracing it as in like celebrating it and saying, oh yeah, this stuff is really great in my life, but just saying, hi, it's there. You know, the way I, I just snapped at my kid and it had nothing to do with him, it had to do with shame that I was carrying around. The early Christian apostle James writes in his letter about Christian spirituality, he talks about discipline and faith, and how to trust in God, he talks about self-sacrifice and humility. One of the things James discusses in his epistle is the spiritual discipline of confession. He writes in chapter 5, confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. I've talked about this a lot. Some of you may have heard it before, but James here isn't talking about salvation. He's not talking about forgiveness. He's not talking about something away over the hill by and by. He's talking about our lives right here, that there's a connection between confessing, getting my stuff out in the open, and experiencing healing in my life right here, right now. There's a connection between exposing the darkness that we see in our lives and seeing that darkness wither and go away. That somehow by dragging it into the light of day, it gets healed. Paul echoes this uh, idea in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, he writes, For you were once in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Live as children of the light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes itself light. And this is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, I think, practically speaking, we know this is true. If you have a, if, if your faucet in the kitchen is leaking, and you don't really realize it. I mean, maybe there's a, a little tiny symptom on the surface, and you know, maybe, maybe the pressure isn't as high as you'd like it to be. But if it's leaking, you wouldn't necessarily know about it. The water gets behind the cabinet, it's under the flooring, it's in the subfloor, maybe into the crawl space. And if you leave it long enough and don't examine it, and the water's just in there in the dark, hidden, what happens? Well, probably you're going to grow some mold. And maybe, if you're unlucky, maybe you won't even realize that there's mold there until you and your family start to get sick from the mold, right? And if you discover this and realize, oh, there's mold there, what, I mean, what happens if you just kind of, you know, paint over it or just dry it up, ignore it? No, it keeps, it keeps growing. The only way to deal with it, the only way to treat mold like that is to tear it all apart to rip everything out, to drag it out into the air, to drag it out into the, into the light, preferably the only way to fix it. If you ignore it, it's just going to get worse. Shame thrives when it's a secret. Shame thrives when it's unnamed and unacknowledged, where it's unobserved. And, and as long as it thrives, I think it hijacks our lives and our behavior from the back seat. We don't even see it. It just happens. So I think the first step in dealing with shame in our lives is to admit it, to own it, to confess it. And I don't suggest this lightly. I think that shame can be terrifying. 
Talking about this stuff can be extremely scary, especially if we're convinced that if anybody finds this thing out about me, they're not going to love me, they're not going to want me, and everyone's going to hate me. I think it actually takes some bravery to open up and say, yeah, I'm feeling shame about this. It's not easy to say, you know, that, that email that I fired off, that really wasn't about you. That was really about something in here. It wasn't about you at all. I was feeling attacked, and I was feeling threatened, and I'm sorry I dumped it on you. That's hard. It's hard to go to someone we trust and confess and say, listen, I have this thing going on in my life and no one else knows about it. I mean, that person might verify the thing that I've been telling myself. I mean, that person might say, yeah, you are a loser. You really need to get it together. Nobody loves you. I mean, they they probably won't, but that's, I mean, the thought of them doing that is terrifying. It takes courage to drag this stuff out into the light. So that's the first one. Say hello to it. Admit it. And the second and final one this morning, once it's named, is to have compassion on it. To have compassion on ourselves. To have empathy for ourselves. And remember, remember the little dog and the remote control. And it's sad. It's, no, it's not any danger. This, its fear is completely irrational. It has two people that love it and give it food. They're not going to hurt it with a remote control. But it's just completely out of control, ready to attack and rip someone's hand off over this thing, right? So when we do that to ourselves and we're telling ourselves, man, I am a worthless loser, I mean, it's kind of sad. It's kind of, I mean, if someone treated me like that, if someone went around telling me that I was an awful, horrible human being and nobody loves me, I wouldn't hang out with them. I would not think that they were a good person, but somehow we imagine that it's okay if we do this to ourselves. So I think the second thing is we need to have compassion for ourselves. It's interesting when when we think about, when I think about the way that Jesus interacted with people who themselves were probably carrying around this kind of shame and judgment about themselves. His impulse is compassion. And kindness. I think about the woman caught in adultery from John chapter 8. Think about the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, Matthew, the tax collector. I think about uh, the blind man, the leper, the paralytic. I mean, the list goes on and on. People whose lives are upturned, people who blame themselves for their own situation. And rather than verifying their source of shame or confirming that their, their response is totally appropriate to it, Jesus demonstrates empathy. He loves them exactly as they are. And that's not to say their conditions are always great or ideal or desirable, but the path to healing goes right through the land of empathy. And there's a saying, we sometimes quote Jesus as saying, the truth will set you free. So we can just ask, like, am I really unlovable? Am I really unworthy. And the word of the scriptures is, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Several years ago, actually it's been quite a while, close to not long after we got married, uh, my wife Paige gave me this frame that has a text written in it, and it sits in my office. It's on my desk for many years, and this is how it reads. It's from Romans 8. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, 
angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. The truth, the truth is that we're loved exactly as we are. So may you be blessed with God's spirit in your lives. May you have eyes to see and ears to hear the way that shame shows up, tries to influence you as you move through the world. May you have courage to own it, to admit it, to confess it, to name it. And may you come to see it for what it is, a vapor, a ruse, or in the words of John, God is love. And this is how he showed it to us. He sent his only son so that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we, once upon a time, loved God, but that he loved us.